tonight. We're in a series we're calling Who is God? And we're talking about that, that complex, multifaceted mountain who is God, the Trinity, the, all those concepts that can be really hard to wrap our brains around, and we are not parsing theological terms. We're not looking for the best way to describe it because, quite frankly, God is bigger than we are. If we can confine him into our little box, then maybe we're God and he's not, so we can't. But what we are trying to do is, is experience him at a deeper level. We're trying to understand what it means to relate to God as a father and for him to relate to us as a father. Next week we'll be talking about how to relate to the Holy Spirit as this energizing, comforting, counselor, teacher, presence in our lives, ever present with us everywhere we go. Today we're talking simply about Jesus. If you want a manuscript of tonight's message, you can go to info at church, uh, bridgechurch.cc and put Goldsboro in there. You'll get this manuscript. Uh, and you can go to, out, if you want the outline, you can go to Uversion Bible app right now and uh, go to events, uh, go to the bridge, Goldsboro, and you can follow along with all the scriptures that I'm going to share with you tonight as we lean into this idea of who is God, and we're going to look at it through the lens of who is God the Son. Let's just be honest about this thing. One of the confusing parts uh, about the Godhead is this thing called the Trinity. From a human vantage point, it's really hard to uh, to wrap our brains around. I told you last week, we're not going to try to find an illustration for it. We're not going to use the egg or the, or the banana or the apple or the clover or none of those kinds of things because all, all of them fall short. What may surprise some of you is the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. In fact, some people will tell you because it's not in the Bible, they will tell you that it's, that it's a false teaching. There's no such thing as the Trinity. But don't let yourself be fooled for those by those people because the Bible is very clear. We have one God and he exists in three persons. We could give you, we could spend the rest of our night just listing scriptures that describe uh, two or three members of the Godhead interacting with each other on a constant basis. Let me just throw a few at you. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and just so you can understand what I'm saying. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, you've got the Father testifying about the Son, and then the Holy Spirit showing up in the form of a dove, all at the same time. You've got in John 5, 19, you've got the Son talking about the Father. In John 14, you've got the Son talking about the Holy Spirit. In John 15, you've got the Holy Spirit talking about the Son. In John 17, the Son calls himself God. I mean, just over and over and over again, it is absolutely clear, as confusing as it may be in human terms, uh, that there is a God. He operates as a trinity. Isaiah said 2,800 years ago, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as a counselor. Now, here's the good news. You don't have to understand it to enjoy the benefits of it. Can I get an amen in the room? You don't have to understand electricity to get the benefits of lights. Isn't that good news? I mean, you have to come up with all the nuances of wiring and all this stuff to enjoy a light bulb? No, you don't. You don't have to understand the intricacies of, a, of an internal combustion engine to go out after service, get in your car, turn the key, and drive home which is a huge blessing for me because we'll be driving down the road sometimes and Kim will say, did you hear that noise? What noise? I didn't hear a noise. Yeah, there's a noise. <laughs> right? And so I finally pull over and I pop the hood and I stand, there and, look, I stand there and look at it for a while going, yep, that's an engine. <sighs> and then I call Gary and say, Gary, can you fix my car? I don't know what's going on. Kim says there's a noise. You don't have to understand engines to enjoy the benefits 
from it. And so all I'm saying to you is you don't have to understand the intricacies of the Trinity to enjoy the benefits that are available in being in relationship with Him. You can relate to Him as a Father, and you can get to know the Son. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, this is an easy one of the three, right? Because everybody knows about Jesus, right? Right? Everybody knows about Jesus, right? Yeah, sure. There's actually an awful lot of confusion about Jesus out there, too. One of the staff pastors at our church in Virginia told me one time he had a young 16-year-old girl came in who grew up in suburban Bible Belt America, 16-year-old girl. She and her boyfriend had broken up, and she was uh, devastated by the breakup, and, and his parents were believers and members of our church, and they convinced her to come in and talk to our, our student ministries pastor, young adult pastor, I guess, and so she sat down with him, and, and he talked to her about relationships, and it you know, feels like the end of the world, but it's not, and all that sort of thing, and then he turned the conversation and said, so... Uh, do you have a relationship with God? And she said, oh, yeah, me and God are tight. <laughs> me and God are tight. He said, oh, well, that's good. Do, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And she said, well, I really don't know much about Jesus. And he said, well, Jesus is God's son who made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And she said, get out. <laughs> I knew God got married, but I didn't know he had kids. <laughs> this is a teenager in suburban Bible Belt, America. So now he's going, oh, let's, well, Lord, you got to give me something here. Uh, where do I start? I said, well, no, actually, God didn't get married. He, uh, it, Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. She said, now, Mary, I've heard of. Where does she fit in the story? By the time they were done, she wanted a relationship with Jesus, whether she understood much about it or not, because she knew she needed him in her life. And that's what I want you to get tonight. In fact, the truth is, we're not even going to talk a lot about Jesus tonight. I want to talk about a man who knew him well and loved him deeply. And in the process, I, I hope, I told you, I've been crying through this thing all week. I hope that I whet your appetite to know him better, to lean in a little more intentionally to get to know this man, the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the Apostle Paul tonight. As far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, pl uh, planted uh, most of the influential churches in the New Testament. He wound up writing nearly half of the New Testament in terms of, of words. He carried the good news to the Gentile world. Uh, but with all of that, all of those accomplishments, Paul's main characteristic in life is just simply he wanted to know Jesus from the time he was confronted with Jesus and who he is until the time he died and stood face to face with his beloved Lord, Paul ached to know Jesus. So let me give you a little background on Paul, and then we're going to dig into what that means. Paul was a man of means. He obviously came from a well-heeled family. He was well-educated. He had every opportunity that was available. He was a Roman citizen, which was a big deal. Lots of benefits with being a citizen of Rome. He was educated by the best. In modern times, it would be like going to an Ivy League school. He was even a deeply religious man. In fact, he was so religious that he dedicated himself to, to ridding the world of this cult that had sprung up called the Way. This cult was beginning to gain influence in his day, and, and Paul was such a, a religious man that he decided he'd better get rid of that this cult was populated by people from every walk of life, but the one characteristic of this cult was that they were people that just simply were followers of Jesus Christ. 
But Paul made up his mind. He had to get rid of the, this group from the world. So he actually went around looking for Christians to throw in jail. In fact, he was complicit, strongly involved in the death of the first deacon, Stephen, said that he held the coats while they threw the stones. He was very much involved. But everything changed for him one day when he met Jesus for the first time. Now, I want you to lean into this. I want you to get this because I think it's huge. Paul, Saul, as he was called before this point, did not change when he was complicit in the murder of Stephen the deacon. He did not come away from that horrible sin and say, Oh, I can't believe what I've done. i got to stop. In fact, it fueled his fire. Soon after that, he went to the chief priest for permission to take it to the next level, and he left the chief priest with permission to start killing Christians. And he went out on a mission, I'm going to kill me some Christians. I'm going to kill me some Christians. You've got to get this. It's a side trip, but, it, but it's an important one because some of you, maybe all of us, have some people in our lives that, that the way they're living their lives is evidence that they are not in love with Jesus, and we want desperately them, for them to know Jesus the way we know Jesus, and we keep hoping against hope that the sin in their lives will finally get their attention, that they'll finally say, oh, man, i got to stop this. Maybe, maybe if I have a bad fix, maybe if I have a, a, a bad drunk, maybe if I hurt somebody really bad, maybe if I do some horrible thing, then, then, then I'll finally wake up. And we're praying somehow that they will hit bottom and, and then look up finally. And that does happen sometimes. But let me tell you that the answer to the, to the issues and the lives of the people that you love that don't know Jesus is not for them to finally do something that's bad enough to get their attention. The answer is they finally be confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. They finally come face to face with the Savior of the world that loves them, died for them. So here's Saul on his road to Damascus looking for some Christians to kill. And he comes in contact with Jesus Christ himself. Now understand that at this point in history, Jesus has already died. He's already risen from the grave. He's already gone back to the Father to prepare heaven. And Saul comes face to face with him on the road. Anybody be shocked by that? Yeah. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6 lays it out. As he entered Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to say, say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Well, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Hear me, guys. From that point forward, everything Paul did was based on his desire to know this man, Jesus, more intimately. His whole identity changed from that point forward. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. He dedicated his life to starting new churches, to training young pastors, to, to writing letters to those churches that he started that ultimately became the New Testament. All because he met Jesus one day. All because he was confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. And here we are 2,000 years later, blessed because Paul met Jesus. So when I say to you that the answer 
is not another rehab program. The answer is not another whatever program. The answer is not even that they finally get bad enough that they'll recognize how bad things are. I believe in all that stuff. Thank God for all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the answer to life change is to be confronted with the person of Jesus Christ in a life-changing kind of way. And if you really want your, the people in your life, the people that you love that are far from God and the dysfunction of their lives is destroying them and the people around them, if you really want change to come, the answer is to pray that they will meet Jesus. Because when you do, everything changes. When you finally meet him, everything changes. So fast forward in Paul's life, all these years from that point forward, he's doing all these things simply because he knows and loves Jesus. He's coming down now to the end of this incredibly fruitful life. He's in prison at this point. Uh, just for preaching Jesus, just for telling people about Jesus. And he starts writing one of his last letters to the church that he started in Philippi. By the time he gets to chapter 3 in, of the book of Philippians, he's looking back over this life of service to Jesus, and he, and he shares the deepest desire of his heart. It becomes clear, and this is where in my own preparation to share with you tonight, this is really the moment that, that I broke. This is the moment that I found myself on my face before God because Paul, having accomplished all these things and having started all of these churches and having taught all these pastors, and he's come down toward the end of his life, he's not asking for another year to start another church. He's not asking for an opportunity to write another letter the only thing he wants is he wants to know Jesus. And I want to be that man. I want to be that man that the only thing that matters to me is that I know Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, but I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't care that I've lost all my money. I don't care that I'm in prison. I don't care that, 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 that I no longer get accolades for the education that I've received. I don't care about it because none of that stuff is it's all rubbish. It doesn't matter to me because the only righteousness that counts it's the righteousness that comes by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he concludes the passage with a prayer. And that's what I want us to unpack for a few minutes tonight, this prayer. Read it with me. It's on the screen. Let's read it together. Read it out loud. I want you to hear yourself reading, and I want you to imagine Paul praying this prayer at this stage of his life toward the end, in prison, waiting for the executioner to come. Here we go. One, two, three. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The only thing that mattered to Paul at that point in his life is I want to know Jesus. 
And I'm thinking, if anybody knew him, this guy knew him, but he longs to know him more deeply. There are four things that Paul prays for. I just want to point them out to you, and I can take a lot of time with it. I just want to point them out to you tonight. My prayer is that you will make this your prayer, that you'll make this the defining characteristic of your life. Frankly, whether you've never given your life to Jesus before or whether you've been walking with him for years is irrelevant in this moment. The only thing that matters is you've got a decision to make. Do I really want to know this man called Jesus? Paul prays for three things, four things, I should say. Number one, he prays to know Jesus. I want to know him. Wait, no, wait, Jim. You just told me that he met him 30 years ago on the road to Damascus. He he wants to know him. He he knows him, right? How many of you know that there are lots of definitions for the word no? No carries an awful lot of meaning to it. You can know your neighbors. What does that mean if you say, I know my neighbor? That might mean that you met across the shrubbery one day. Yeah, I know my neighbor. Or it might be that you have dinner together three nights a week. I mean, it's... You, it might mean, yeah, I know that guy. Oh, stay away from him. I mean, there's lots of meanings to know when it comes to that kind of thing. If somebody says, I know how to cook, what does that mean? I don't know. That may mean you've been to the culinary school of Paris. Or it might be you can finally boil water without burning the pot. I don't know what that means. I know how to cook, Right? If you say, I know a subject, I, 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 yeah, I, real, I know all there is to know. I know a lot about math or science or whatever it is. That, that may mean that you've got basic knowledge. You don't even know what you don't know. You don't even know what the questions are. Or it may be that you've got a Ph.D. and you're teaching it on a university level. I don't know. People go around saying, man, he knows his stuff. And maybe that's what no means. It's true in every area of life. I know my job. I, I know my hobbies. You start with one level of knowing, right? And over time, you grow until you know more. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. You got it. Because what you're learning is more questions that you didn't even know to ask before. And it becomes this lifelong journey. And that's true for every discipline in life, unless you're talking about golf and Jim Wall. I don't know anything more about it than I did 45 years ago, I went out not too long ago, last year I guess it was, and, and I met a guy, was just, I was out by myself, and I said, hey, you got somebody I can uh, link up with? I love to do that because you end up in all kinds of cool conversations with these strangers. I said, got anybody I can link up with? And so they put me with this guy, and we played, it's about my age, we played two or three holes together, and he was playing about the same level of golf uh, that I am, uh, that I do. And, uh, and after the third or fourth hole, he said, uh, you know, I don't think I'm doing too bad. I, I just picked up the game last year. And so we hit the ball, and we went on to the next, you know, got up to the green, and he said, so how long have you been playing the game? <laughs> Forty-seven years. <laughs> Peaked out at year two. <laughs> been downhill ever since. You know, but the goal is to know. It's to know more and more. When Kim and I first got married, you know, I, we thought we knew each other. We didn't know anything about each other. It's been this lifelong journey of getting to know the look getting to know the tone of voice, getting to know. You know the look, right? (laughs) To the point that I would be absolutely incomplete without her. 
that's just the reality of, of life. And so here's Paul saying, I want to know him. I've met him. I've spent my life getting to know him, but I want to know him. The Greek word uh, that he used was the word ginosko, that means to know absolutely. I want to know everything there is to know, and I will not be satisfied until I know everything that I can possibly know. And that's all I'm trying to say to you in this, this whole series, guys, is there's no point in which you're going to know everything there is to know about God. He doesn't just want you to know something about Him. He wants you to know Him. Frankly, He wants you to be hungry to know Him more and never come to a point of satisfaction where you feel like you know Him enough. Paul didn't stop, though, at knowledge. He wanted not just to know Him. He wanted to see, touch Feel him. So the second part of his prayer is he prayed, I want to experience Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know him, but I want to also know him in the, what does it say? In the power of his resurrection. Does that sound powerful to you? Anybody here want to know the power of his resurrection? Anybody here? God bless that hand. God bless that hand. Two hands. The rest of you, I got nothing else to say to you. I don't know. Now hear me. Understand something. Paul was not one of the original disciples. He didn't get to meet Jesus and sit down and have fish with him at the seaside. He didn't get to hear him teach, and he didn't get to be a part of, of all those miracles that he did when he was walking uh, around earth. He, he did meet him, but it was after the resurrection before he ever met him. When he met him, it was in this powerful kind of way. Later on, he got to spend time with the apostles, and their first response to him was to push him away because they were scared of him. But over life, he learned more and more and more and more. But one of the things he learned in all of that, even though he didn't get to see it for himself, is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, he demonstrated power. Jesus demonstrated power over physical illness, from blindness to leprosy to death. Jesus demonstrated power over spiritual illness and emotional oppression. He delivered demon-possessed boy. I mean, he, he, he demonstrated power. And Paul wanted to experience that power. He didn't get to see it for himself like the disciples did. He wanted to know it. He wanted to experience it. And he wanted us to know it too. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. In both of those passages, the, the Philippians passage and the Ephesians passage, you, you saw the word power in there? It's the Greek word dunamis from which we get the English word. Anybody know? Dynamite. Dynamite is power. And he wanted to know that power. He wanted, that, he wanted to have that, that kind of power. And I realize some of you here tonight or, or some of you that are watching uh, online, uh, instead of thinking, okay, yeah, well, yeah, there was power when Jesus was here, but that kind of stuff doesn't happen now. And if that's what you think, then you need to know what Jesus said. In John 14, 12, he said, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the same things that I do. What, what does same mean? Same. But he goes on. He says, those who believe in me will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the 
Father. In other words, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's not that we're going to do better things that he did. It mean, it's that we're going to do the same kinds of things that he did in greater measures because we'll be scattered all across the planet and have access to those power. Hear me, guys. Jesus is still in the miracle business. I got one? Uh-huh. Jesus is still in the miracle business. It's true. I wish I could just stand here and tell you story after story after story. Can I tell one or two? Just one or two. I mentioned during our time together since January that our son Adam was hurt in a car accident. One of the, just one of the many stories that came out of, of that accident. He was in hospital for four months, multiple surgeries. Uh, lost him on the verge of losing him twice during that period. But one of the things that happened with Adam, his arm was broken so badly that there was a nerve... Uh, here, they had to put a plate in and screws, and there was a nerve here that was damaged badly, and the, and the doctors told us they weren't sure if it was severed or bruised, but they said if it heals, it will heal one, was it one millimeter a, sec a day, Kim? One millimeter a day, which means that if it healed all the way down to his hand, that it would take nine months for us to even know if it was going to heal. And Adam could close his hand, but he couldn't lift his hand back up. He couldn't open his fingers back up. So they had this brace with rubber bands, and he would close his hand, and the rubber bands would bring it up. And he'd close his hand and, and bring his fingers back up. Well, we had a lady in our church that was praying for him one morning, and she was just agonizing and praying that God would touch Adam. And, and she called Kim and said, you know what, I'm not sure what's going on, but while I was praying, I sensed the, the Lord telling me, stop asking me and start thanking me for what I've done. And when we got to the hospital that day, Adam was sitting in his bed playing his guitar. <laughs> the doctor came in, or the nurse came in, and started fussing at him for not wearing his brace. <laughs> he said, I don't need it. See, I'm fine. I just, I don't need that. They couldn't wrap their brains up. Put that brace on. You've got to have that brace on. No, I don't. He's playing the guitar for him. There is no explanation for that. None. Finally got the doctor to use the M word. That's the only way you can explain it. Pastor Jim Gilligan, our, our executive pastor, tells a story from his own family of a niece who had a tumor on her eardrum, on her inner ear, and uh, tons of evidence that it was there. Took her in for surgery. The church gathered and prayed, and people prayed that God would heal her. Took her in, and they did the surgery, but when they opened her up, there was no tumor. The doctor was so nervous that the family was going to sue him for doing a surgery that didn't need to be done that he actually came to them with the, with the screens. I don't know if it was x-rays or MRIs or what it was, but he brought them the, the things and said, look, I'm telling you, there is the tumor yesterday, and there, and there she is today, and I did not take it out. There, I, I, the, I didn't mess up, okay? And they're just saying, no, you didn't mess up. God just showed up. Again, we could spend the rest of the night telling stories, some of the things that we've seen. A friend of ours that had multiple sclerosis and, and lesions all up and down his spine and not been able to, to pick up his children for four years, walked with a cane in his 30s, active duty, finally had to leave the military because of that, and we prayed for him, and God healed him. He went in for a checkup on his lesions, and they said the lesions are going away. The next day, he picked up his little girl, and he carried her upstairs and put her to bed for the first time in four years because God had touched him. 
Now, I can't stand here and tell you why this one gets touched and this one doesn't, why this one gets healed and that one doesn't. I, I don't know. Jesus didn't heal everybody he encountered when he was here. That's in God's hands. But I can, I'm here to tell you that the, the miraculous still happens. God is still at work. In fact, just two weeks ago, millions of people gathered to celebrate Easter. Why did we do that? Because Jesus died for our sins, right? But hear me, he didn't just die for our sins. He rose from the grave to show us that even death can't stop him. Nothing can hold him back. And I know that's harder for some people to wrap their brains around than others, but I'm here to tell you it's real. It's true. There's tons of documentation for that. And that's why we're going to gather. Maybe you saw it in the video. Uh, we're going to gather on Friday night, May 5th. All three of our campuses are coming together for a celebration of worship. I want you to prioritize your life to be there that Friday night. Child care, five years old and younger, and we're just going to come together and worship. And we're going to pray, and we're going to believe that God's going to do some amazing things. And if you've got something going on in your life that you just need God to show up, then start praying this prayer. Jesus, I want to know you, and, and not just know you, I want to experience you. Come hoping, praying, believing that you're going to. I believe God's going to do some powerful things on Friday night, May 5th, at the Princeton campus where all of our campuses come together to serve the Lord. Again, I... I, I I didn't come to explain it all to you, because I, I can't. But I can tell you I've seen it. I can tell you I know it's true. And I can tell you that I want all the power that's available to me. And I want you to know it, too. Paul had a hunger to know Jesus as intimately as he could and to experience his power. But he didn't stop there. The third part of his prayers is that he would share with Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know him, one of the power of his resurrection, and the fellowshipping, a fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now that's a harder one. Can I get an amen? Why would anybody want to? I mean, we, we're just talking Easter about the sufferings. Why, why would anyone want to? share in that. And I got to be honest with you, you know, I can kind of wrap my brain around that a little bit as a parent. When my, one of my children is sick, how do I feel? I'm sick too, right? Because when they hurt, I hurt. That's just the way it is. When Kim's not well, I'm, I'm not well. I mean, it's just the way it is when you love someone. But we had an experience just a few years ago when our oldest son and his wife were stationed at Pearl Harbor, and we went for a visit, and we went to the Pearl Harbor uh, Memorial and went to the Memorial Wall. I don't know if you guys have been there but it's an emotional experience to see the names of those who gave their lives in Pearl Harbor on that day, December 7th. But perhaps the most amazing thing that I did not know about Pearl Harbor is that to the, to the front and left side, there was another marker with the names of men inscribed there. And these were men who survived December 7th went on to live full lives, in some cases, 85, 90 years old. But when they died, they wanted to be buried with their comrades there because their entire lives had been defined by this bond that was formed on that day in tragedy. The truth is there is a common bond that forms when we suffer together. Is that right? 
That's why it's not unusual when you're going through a hard time in your life and God helps you through that, that within two to five years, he will turn that tragedy into a ministry. Because you can relate to people that are going through what you went through. And the best mentor and coach is someone who has been where you are and has gotten to where you want to get. It's not unusual for God to do that kind of stuff. And that's what Paul is praying for. Jesus, I want to know. I want to know what makes you hurt. I want to grieve over what makes you grieve. I want to feel not just your power. I want to feel your pain. Now, that's a demonstration of how much he loved him. But it does cause me to stop and ask myself, and, and I hope that you're stopping right now and you're asking yourself, what is it that I'm praying for when I, when I talk to Jesus? The truth of the matter is an awful lot of what I pray for is, Jesus, fix this for me. Fix that for me. Make this easier for me. Make this better for me. Provide this for me. Am I the only one? I don't think so. I found myself this week praying, as scary as it is, Jesus, would you break my heart over what breaks your heart? Would you cause me to grieve over the things that make you grieve? I know one thing that breaks his heart. I know one thing that he grieves over, and that is that there are so many thousands of people within a 15, 20-minute drive of where we're sitting right now who don't know Jesus. And if he were to come right now and call this to a conclusion, they would be bound for a devil's hell that was not prepared for them. That breaks his heart. I know that because you can hear his broken heart over his own hometown when he was here on earth. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus is standing on the hillside looking over Jerusalem, his hometown, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not let me. I can hear him almost weeping, looking at the people of Jerusalem who had turned their backs on God over and over and over again and rejected the prophets that God had sent to the point that they rejected the very Messiah that they'd been praying for centuries would come, and they rejected him. But that didn't make Jesus mad. It didn't make him angry. It didn't make him say, get him, God. It broke his heart. He said, how often I would have gathered you under my wing like a mother hen would her chicks. And I'm broken that you won't let me. Paul prayed that he would know Jesus, that he would experience Jesus, and yes, that he would share in Jesus' suffering. There's a fourth part of his prayer. Ultimately, he prayed, I want to be like Jesus. Do you understand that the more you rehearse someone, the more like them you become. And that's true even if the someone you are rehearsing is hurting you. The more you rehearse, the more you become like what you're rehearsing. 
Paul said, I just want to rehearse you. I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to feel what you feel. I want to be broken by what you're broken over. And ultimately, I want to become like you. In his death, he said. Becoming like him in his death. And I think that's why Paul almost begged the church at Philippi in chapter 2. When he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Die to yourself, he's saying. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That passage goes on to say, Jesus gave up all the glories of heaven and took on the form of man. Why? Because we needed him to. He served us. He served all the way to death, the worst possible death. He died on Calvary for us. Why? Because we needed him to. Jesus died because we needed him to. Becoming like Jesus requires that we begin to die to self because there are so many people around us that desperately need somebody to die to their own selfishness and give their lives up for them. There are so many needs around us constantly. But hear me, guys. Lean into this. Write it down somewhere. The road to your own health includes seeing the needs that are around you and doing something about them. The ceiling to your own growth is your willingness to stop thinking about your own needs and start seeing the needs around you and giving your one and only life away to something that eternally matters. i got to close. I'm out of time. But I hope somehow that you've caught just a little glimpse of what I've, what I've been agonizing over all week and what I've been trying to share with you from my heart. Not a theological exposition on who Jesus is, but a, a plead, really, that you develop this hunger to know him, to experience him, to let him break your heart over what breaks his. And ultimately, to give your life away in ways that eternally matter the way that Jesus ultimately did. No way in one message that I can tell you all there is to know about him. In fact, I can't even do it in one series of messages. We could spend the whole year. wouldn't exhaust it. So as I thought about how I could do that, I thought, maybe I'll just wrap this message up by reading some of the names of Jesus. And as you listen to these names, I want you to do two things with me. Some of them may be familiar to you, some of them may not. But as you do, two things. I hope that a prayer will arise in you that you will get to know this Jesus. And then my hope is that a praise will arise from you for who this Jesus is. Listen. The Bible calls him the Almighty One, the Alpha and Omega, Adonai, the Advocate, 
the author and finisher of our faith, the bread of life, the beloved, the son of God, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone, the deliverer, the faithful and true, the good shepherd, our great and high priest, the head of the church, the holy servant, the I am, the Emmanuel God with us, the indescribable gift, the righteous judge, the king of kings, the lamb of God, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord of all, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty one, the one who sets us free, our hope, our peace, our prophet, our redeemer, our risen Lord, the rock of our salvation, the sacrifice for our sins, the savior of our lives, the son of man, the son of the most high God, the supreme creator of all, the resurrection of the life, the door, the way, the truth, the life, the word, the true vine the victorious one, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus, and he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of every noise, every sound, every energy, every word that we can ever utter that would give him praise, and he's worthy of the prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now as we close the same prayer that Paul prayed. I'm going to ask you to pray it out loud or silently. I don't care. You make it in your own words if you want, but I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Not just recite the words, but pray the prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to know him. I want to know who he really is. I want to know him as intimately as I possibly can. I want to experience his power. The power that God used to raise him from the dead. I want to experience that. And I will not let small faith or fear block me from asking to experience that. I want to see it, feel it, touch it, experience it. I want to know it. I want to know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. I want to bond with him at that point. I want whatever breaks his heart to break my heart. Included, but not limited to, the reality that there are thousands of people around us who desperately need Jesus. Ultimately, I want to become like him and share with him in the resurrection. Father, you know who's praying tonight. You know what's going on in their minds. And I ask simply that you speak life and love and grace into them. Let them know how proud it makes you 
for us to pray that prayer. And to sincerely ask you for those things. And then show yourself to us. Show yourself. Draw us to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.